open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray as we set aside this time for you to delve into your word. We pray, Lord, that there would be no confusion or distraction. We pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to your word and that you would open this word to our eyes and our mind. We pray, Lord, that we would all be strengthened and encouraged and edified in the word, and that we would see it for what it is. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, at the risk of having everyone mad rush to the door, the title of this might possibly be, Are There Hidden Messages in the Bible? So pause, pause. Darren, don't let anybody out. Um, that, that sounds like a strange thing to say, but, and of course, everything depends on definitions. What do you mean by hidden and what do you mean by messages? Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 2. It says, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Now, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a strange person. I, I, I really think, and that's what, I wanna, what we kind of want to enforce to cement over the next three hours, is the idea that every word, every detail in the Bible, it matters. That if the Bible says that 47 bears came out of a bush and mauled somebody, that there's a reason the Bible specifies 47, that it was a bear and not a squirrel, that they were mauled and not just nibbled. Every detail matters. And this verse says that it is the glory of God. And what does it mean when we use the phrase glory of God? What if you glorify something? What does that mean? Praise and honor, what does that even mean? If something is glorified, for instance, our culture glorifies sports. It glorifies, say, sexuality in advertisement. You can't buy toothpaste without seeing somebody in a bikini. Glorify means you draw attention to it. You draw everybody's eyes toward it. You raise their awareness. This verse says it is the glory of God. He gets attention. There is awareness brought to him, and it says, by concealing a thing. That, that sounds strange, doesn't it? God would conceal. So I thought he wrote a book so that we could read it word for word. We would know exactly what he means. And that also, of course, is true. It's absolutely true that when he tells us something, he wants us to know exactly what he means. God is not the author of confusion. He has no desire to be misunderstood. So what does he mean when he says, he can get glory by concealing a thing. Well, the next part of that verse, the second half of that verse says, it is the honor of kings to search it out. You see, we're going to look at maybe a different way of even looking at the Bible because there is a way that God can prove himself by having certain things found in the book that could not possibly be there by accident. That somebody had to, by design, put all this, and as this verse says, kind of conceal it. Maybe just underneath the surface, you have to scratch at it a little bit, do some research, study it. The Bible oftentimes talks about reading it, learning of it in language like you're eating. It talks about the word being made like honey. Jesus said that he was the bread of life. And He's the word. We are to consume it. Jesus said, man shall not live by every, man shall not live 
by bread alone, which you eat, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He compared it to food, something you eat, you digest it, and it becomes a part of you. You know, when you eat bread, when you eat a chocolate bar, almost all of yourselves receive a portion of that. Part of that goes into you, becomes part of you. And same thing with the Bible, that when you read it, when you search it, when you digest it, there's stuff in there that may not even be apparent to your taste buds as it's going down. It's the glory of God to conceal a thing. But see, the implication is that when you dig it out and you find out what's kind of behind the text a little bit, you realize, my goodness, some miraculous being had to write this. So let's get started. We've got three hours to go. Go to Numbers chapter 21. Some people are laughing. They don't know us. Numbers chapter 21, a very strange story in the Bible. Numbers chapter 21, and starting at verse 4, it says, And they, it's talking about the Israelites, they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass or go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God. Every time I read that, I just want to pause. They spoke against God. That's a dangerous thing. And against Moses, wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. This is getting stranger by the verse, isn't it? First of all, we don't associate God with doing something like this. And we're not going to delve into that part. That's not why we came here. Let's keep reading verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. So they figured out they've done something wrong. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, He has directions for Moses. Make thee a fiery... Does it really say that? Make thee a fiery serpent? This sounds almost like making that dumb golden calf. And God said, set it upon a pole. Stranger by the phrase. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Maybe this is the reason why we really don't read the Old Testament that much, huh? It's things like this you read before you go to bed and you can't sleep. Lord, why in the world would you command Moses to make an image of those fiery serpents, made it out of brass, put it on a pole, and raise it up. Now verse 9 says, Moses made a serpent of brass, he put it on upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he had beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So, God was telling the truth. We get that part out of the story. But do you realize that from that verse, all the way out the end of your Bible, where is the explanation for what we're reading? Does it ever occur to you that if the details matter, why in the world do we have such a strange visual aid? People are dying. There's serpents that are biting them. And God tells his guy, Moses, make an image of that thing, put it on a pole and raise it up off the earth so everybody can see it. And whoever looks at it, 
they'll live. See, this really was, it was life and death. There were people dying over this. Strange idea. And here's the strangest part. From that point, all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this serpent on a pole only gets mentioned one other time because we don't even have an explanation. Why a serpent? Why make it out of brass? Why put it on a pole? Why do we look at it? And then we lit that it's strange. 2 Kings. Go to 2 Kings chapter 18. And let's just look really quick at the only other place that this is mentioned. 2 Kings chapter 18. If we got Pastor on speed dial, call him and get him back here. This guy is weird. 2 Kings chapter 18. And it's talking about Hezekiah in the first verse. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. He was a a good guy. Verse 3, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. Here's what he did in verse 4. He removed the high places, break the images, and cut down the groves, and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushat. That's a... Hebrew word that just means it's a brazen, fiery thing. So see, what we learn here is that after a while, those, those guys, they looked at that serpent. Just as God said, they, they, they were healed of the plague that was among them. But what happened after that? It became an idol. So now this thing's even stranger. They're worshiping something that they shouldn't be worshiping. And that, that's a terrible thing in the Old Testament. Why in the world is this story in our, our Bible? These kind of questions need to be asked. Because why would God use up space? Have you ever been reading your Bible and think, Lord, you could have condensed this sucker down. We, we don't need Genesis 5 that has all the begats. We don't need a lot of Leviticus. I, I could get through this. I could reach my goal maybe by May of getting through the Bible instead of the whole year. Cut some of this stuff out. But there's a reason. Every word, every story, every image, there's a reason. John chapter 3. Now think of this. We are going to the New Testament. That story that we just read, it has no other mentions, no other explanations, no other rationale, no no grandfather sat his grandson on his knee and told him, let me tell you about this brazen serpent thing and where we could learn some information and it would be explained to us. But when we get to the Gospel of John... Chapter 3, there is the most famous verse in the entire Bible throughout the whole world. A lot of people know John 3.16. When I was a kid, NFL football games, they used to have white bed sheets with spray painted John 3.16 behind where they would kick field goals. You always saw it. There were some gutsy people that did that. And in this story of what Jesus says, let's read what it says, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, it's not a big deal, but that word not perish, that's the same phrase that God told Moses. You look up at that serpent on the pole, and you won't perish. You'll live. Now, why is Jesus using this, uh, this language here? Well, let's back up a few verses. He's talking to a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is asking him some questions, and Jesus 
says in verse 12, um, verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? So Jesus is making a comparison. That he can talk about heavenly things or earthly things, which tells us that there are, there's a discrepancy. Talking about one doesn't always give you all the information about the other one. But Jesus uses both. And look at verse 14. He says, As Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now we read through that, and most of the time, I, honestly, I would, I would bet my life that over 90% of Christians, when they read through that, there is zero image comes into their mind when they read the, the sentence, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. We just think, well, God's just, he's talking about the days of Moses, and they must have done something. Whatever it is, we don't need to read about it, don't even need to know about it. Let's just get on to the good stuff. Like verse 16, where it tells me that God died for me, which is true, he did. But why does Jesus himself, in trying to explain to Nicodemus, he's describing his own death and what his death is going to do, and what image does he use? Something that the Bible only mentions in one place, basically, and doesn't even explain it. This strange idea of this crazy Moses putting on a pole, a brass pole, a serpent, and people looked at it. And 1,400 years later, Jesus uses that. Uses it to do what? Makes a comparison. He said it's just the same thing. It's just like it. As Moses. Those that have had English classes, and you're better than me, I hated English, but that sounds like a comparison. Kind of a simile, a metaphor, one of those two maybe. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, or just the same, must the Son of Man be lifted up? I have a question now for you. We're 15 minutes into our three hours. Why did God record through the hand of Moses that brazen serpent thing in the wilderness? Way back in Numbers chapter 21. Better question. Why did God even work it out that way? Why did he give the instruction to Moses to get a pole? fashion a serpent on that crazy thing, and then tell the people to look to it. See, he, he could have just done something like Peter did in the book of Acts. He could have laid his hands on somebody. He could have did like Jesus did. He could have just spoke to the demons and cast them out. He could have healed people in any way that he wanted to. But what way did he choose to do back in Numbers? God told Moses, put this serpent on a pole and raise it up, and when they look at it, and then it disappears. For way over a thousand years, it is not mentioned. It's not described. It's not explained. We don't know why. Think of all Moses. The Bible doesn't tell us that Moses knew that what he was doing was making a picture of Jesus someday. It doesn't tell us that. Possibly he knew. We don't have information of that. What What I'm pointing out is that all those people in the Old Testament, none of them, probably knew why God did it that way. And yet, 1,400 years later, Jesus uses that. He brings it out of the ash heap, out of the history books to say, this is the thing that we learn from that time period. 
Remember what we started out reading? That it is the glory of God to do what? To conceal something. And it is the honor of kings to search it out. You see, one thing this points out is that what God did in the Old Testament, he doesn't just discard it after, say, a couple weeks go by because, well, I've got new things to do. God held on to that image for 1,400 years to tell the whole world what his son would do, that it's just like that. You're getting how God treats his word, his Bible? The Old Testament isn't something different than the New Testament. It's not different in such a way that, well, we just need to throw that away and we'll just stick with, with the New Testament because that's where Jesus is. Is it? What did Jesus use to point to somebody in his day the information about himself? He, he went way back there. Way back to something that had four verses, no explanation. And God clearly told Moses to do it that way for a purpose that was thousands of years later. That's what I'm trying to get at. God uses his word that way, which means for you and for me, I refuse to throw one word away. Jesus said that not one word, not one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until it all be fulfilled. Jesus was always talking about that stuff. The people asked him about, you know, you need to show us a sign. You're telling us you're the son of God. Uh, what's your authority on this stuff? And Jesus said, it's an evil generation to ask for a sign, but I'll give you one. What was the sign that he gave him? As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall I be in the heart of the earth, three days and three nights. You know what that tells me? Number one, Jesus believed Jonah was really swallowed up by a whale. Yes, it also tells me that that strange occurrences was for what purpose? To show a picture, to glorify, to draw our attention to the only human being who went three days in the heart of the earth, predicted that he would come out, and he did it. And he ascended to the Father. See, the point is, all of these details, of all of these strange things, they have a purpose. But only, only for somebody who's really looking for it. I'm 47. I was probably 42 before any of these things that we're going over meant anything to me. I, I'm reading Jonah. I never thought of, well, that's a picture of Jesus. Didn't even know about that serpent thing. Would read through it. Just let me get that out of my head. I want to get through this book. I've got to get a certain place by May 21. But when you look for that and when the Holy Spirit begins to, when you allow the Holy Spirit to show you how way back there in Numbers, matches up with John chapter 3, now something happens. And what begins to happen is what took place in Luke. Go to Luke chapter 24. The Gospel of Luke. This is after Jesus resurrected from the dead. He has appeared to a few people. Some of them didn't believe what they saw. They went and told some of the disciples, hey, we saw, we've seen him, and the disciples didn't believe it, thought they were just telling old tales. And in Luke 24, he is walking 
on the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples. And they're having some strange discussions. The, the, the disciples that are walking with him, the Bible says they have not yet figured out. Their eyes are beholden. They can't recognize Jesus yet. And they're having a long conversation, though, on this road to Emmaus. And finally, these people in verse 24 tell Jesus about, we had people that went down to the grave, the sepulcher. They saw that he was raised from the dead, and we don't know what to make of this. And verse 25, Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe. What? What were they slow to believe? All that the prophets had spoken. And Jesus says, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? Now, that, that's strange if, if you're paying attention. Why does he, people, he called them fools. I don't want to be called a fool by Jesus. And he expected them to know what? You're slow to believe all that the prophets have written. That's, those are Old Testament, all those small little books that we can't make any sense of. Jesus expected them to know it. So he has this conversation with these disciples. He then goes on to meet the, all the rest of the disciples. And look at verse 44. This is Jesus back with all of them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written where? In the law of Moses. Where's that? The law of Moses, that's basically the first five books of the Bible. The first five, that's way back there. And in the prophets and in the Psalms. Now, he says, comma, concerning me. How many Christians do you think, when they're reading the Psalms or reading Leviticus or Exodus, agree with what Jesus said right here, that those books are concerning him? We think, we read the Old Testament, well, I'm going to learn about Abraham and Moses, Samson, David, Nehemiah, Daniel. Jesus is saying that if you read those in the right way, who are you learning about? He's telling his disciples that those things were concerning me. Now that, really, honestly, we should spend the rest of our three hours on that idea. Think of that. That is life-changing. That's, that's radically different than... How many churches would, to go to hear a message, a sermon, if, they, if you tell them to turn in Numbers 21, nobody thinks, all right, I, I'm going to learn something about Jesus. Nobody thinks that. But he expected his disciples to think that way. And look at the next verse. I, find, I, I, I get goosebumps every time I read verse 45. After he told them that, that all the Old Testament was a picture of him, after he told them that, verse 45 says, then, then, it was after that, that he opened their understanding that they might do what? This makes you want to close that sucker and think for a while. Now, they, those disciples that ate with Jesus, that heard every message he preached, they lived with him. They were his best friends. They wrote down his sermons. When did they understand the scriptures? after they learned to look in the Old Testament and see Jesus. See him where? See him as that pole that Moses put up. 
And we never really did finish that, did we? Because that serpent that's on a pole, why a serpent? I thought Jesus, the Son of God, the purity of all the universe was put on that pole. He was. But what does the Bible tell us in Corinthians? It was that he was made to be what for us? You think about that the rest of tonight, if you can go to sleep. He was made to be sin for us. See, that serpent, we all, everybody understands a serpent is a picture of not something nice. Serpent. It was a foreshadowing. Jesus, just like he, that serpent was on a pole, he got put on a pole, a cross. He was made to be sin. God put your sin, he put my sin, and he crushed it on that pole. He crucified it. He tortured it. He was made to be sin. Think of that. The purest thing in the universe, the creator God himself, he was made to be sin. Wow. And God uses pictures in every page of your Bible to try to get that across. Amazing. Those disciples finally, finally, in Jesus' words, finally understood the scriptures. Now, they were good Jewish boys. I'll bet they had most of that stuff memorized. A lot of those Jewish people, they had this, the, the scriptures memorized, but he's saying that they didn't really understand it until Jesus sat down with them and showed them how in the Old Testament it was a picture of him. And what, what, what's an example? Think, I mean, what, let's say the, the crossing of the Red Sea. God splitting the Red Sea and his people going through. See, in the New Testament, it even tells us that that's a picture of baptism. God had brought his people, Israel, out of bondage, out of sin. That's a picture of sin being enslaved in Egypt. When they were brought out of that, they were brought up to a place where they had to have a miracle. They were going to die in their sin. But God parted the Red Sea. They walked through that, and who else went in there with them? The Egyptians which is basically their sin. The, that was their bondage. But when they got through on the other side, what happened to the water? God brought that water on them. The Bible says it killed all those Egyptians. The Israelites turned around and they saw the Israelites washing up dead on the seashore. They saw with their own eyes what represented their past, their sin, their bondage, would never come back to enslave them again, ever. They were dead. They never, never thought, they never had to worry. I wonder if sleeping out here under, this, under the moon tonight, are those Egyptians just around the corner? Are they coming up to get it? No. Because the picture of baptism, when, when we get baptized as a New Testament Christian, it's just an outward picture of what's going on on the inside, and that's the image. That when I go down in the water, I leave all the yuck, the gunk, the garbage of my old life stays there. And when I come up out of there, I'm a new creature. Now, there's nothing special about that water. If we really thought that there was something, some salvation in that water, what would we do to all those crazy uncles that are unsaved? I'd hit him over the head with a baseball bat, knock him out, and I would drag him and dunk him in that water just to make sure he went to heaven. See, there's nothing special about the water. It's what goes on in his heart. This, this is just a picture. But see, the Bible uses that Red Sea idea as a picture for that. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22. 
big one, an easy one. Now, as you're turning to Genesis 22, where are we going? What's the picture? What story is contained in Genesis 22? It's one of the most important chapters in our Bible. We know we're going back to the time of Abraham in the middle of Genesis. God started his nation with Abraham. He, was, he came and he talked to Abraham. He told him to get out of where you are. You go to a place that I will show you. I'll give it to you, but you've got to come walk all over it. You stay there, and I'll give it to you, your children, and your children's children forever. He had made that promise. Now, to have that promise succeed, what does Abraham need? He needs children. And he doesn't have one for a long time. He's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. From 75 years old until he's... 87 or so, nothing happens. And finally, he tries to help God out, he and his wife, and they have Ishmael. And God tells him, that's not, that's not how we're doing it. He's not a miracle. That's not my promise. I told you that the seed would come from Sarah. So he finally does. They have relationships with Sarah. She finally, by a miracle, does conceive, and Isaac is born. They go through all that. And when Isaac becomes a teenage boy, what does God tell Abraham to do? To sacrifice him. Now we, we analogize that, we, we allegorize that, and we, we say, you know, it's the thing that you love that God will ask you to give up. And, and that, stuff is, that stuff is true, possibly. God's never come to me and asked me to sacrifice my only son. And I love him. I really do. He may not believe it some days, but I love everything he does. And yet God's never asked me to give. So is that the story? Is that what that story really means? Genesis 22, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. Does, so no matter whatever you love, God's always going to ask you to give that up? I mean, that's not really what that means. He might. God does ask us to give. He asked, there was, I used to play golf every single day of my life. The sun never went down where I wasn't on a golf course. And I, I kind of had to give that up many years ago. But it's not a, the only thing or the main thing that Genesis 22 tells us. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son to literally kill him. Now, I know a lot of people in churches that hate this story. They don't like to think that God would ask somebody to kill a kid. I, I don't understand. And because of that confusion, they walk away from the Old Testament. And in some cases, I know of some people that have walked away from God. I, I refuse to serve somebody that would ask a loving father to kill his innocent child. What, who would do that? See, that's confusion. Why is that story here in the Bible? What do we learn from Genesis 22, where Abraham, this most revered person in the entire Old Testament, he's called the friend of God. We know a lot about him. He's asked to kill his son. And there are details in this story. Let's just start reading in chapter 22. Look at verse 1. It came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac. Wait a minute. 
John, you tell us that there's details in the Bible. That says only son? I thought he had Ishmael. In the eyes of God, when he's dealing with promise, Isaac is the only son. It's not a misprint. Take thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. This is the first time in the Bible that the word love appears. And what is the image? A doting father who's going to do what? Kill his son, who didn't do anything wrong. Transport that about 2,000 years into the future. This whole story is a picture of God the Father who is willing, because nobody made Abraham do this. And nobody made Isaac. Isaac crawled up on that thing himself, people. Abraham, 99 years old. By the time Isaac is a teenager, Abraham's well over 100. There's no way he would have caught this kid if he ran away. Isaac crawled up there voluntarily. It's an image of Jesus Christ. Whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah. God told him to go to a specific place. Every detail matters. If it tells you that he told him, go to to the land of Moriah, you need for the rest of the time when you read the Bible, be looking for what word? Moriah. And follow that through the Bible. Because it matters. And here's what we find out. The next time that word is kind of mentioned in the Bible is when David is going to build the temple. And the mountain of Moriah is where this one guy had a certain threshing floor where God told David, you go buy that from him because your son Solomon, when it's time to build me a temple, we're going to build it right there. David and Solomon, they would build the temple at this same spot. Now, go past David when you get to the New Testament. What is still on that spot, even though it had been burned down, it had been rebuilt, the temple is still in that spot. When Jesus died, the Bible tells us that the centurion, standing there at the cross, when the centurion saw the curtain of the temple torn in two and the earthquake, he said, oh my God, this, this must have been the Son of God. Jesus died within sight a stone's throw, maybe an eight iron or a four iron, away from that temple where the curtain tore in two. The point is, Jesus died on the same spot where Abraham took Isaac. The picture is so complete, the details are so fulfilled that when God writes this in the 22nd chapter of the book, It's every bit as real as when you get 2,000 years farther in the time of Jesus. So here we go. You go to a place that I will tell you, offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. He had a specific place. You see how God is orchestrating this whole thing? None of this, there's no detail in any of this that is Abraham's idea. Abraham didn't think of... This would be a good day to get rid of Isaac. He never thought, well, that one mountain, if I was ever going to kill one of my kids, I'd do it over there. None of this was Abraham's idea. 
correct? God orchestrated all of this for a purpose. Now, you guys know your Bibles well enough that we're going to skip through some of the details here. Abraham and Isaac go up to this place, and in Isaac is asking, you know, I know how we do this, Dad. We've done this stuff before. You got the fire, the knife, but I and some wood, but I don't see the sacrifice, the animal that we're going to take the life. And in verse 8, Abraham responds and says, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. Now, there's one way to read that, and there's another way to read that. God will provide himself a lamb. You can read that as, God will provide himself as a lamb. See, as you get, start reading through this, and I'm telling you, it's concrete by the time you get to the end, that Abraham knows he's acting out a future event. That sounds crazy until, until you get to the end. You'll see this. Abraham knows right now, walking up there, that God's going to do some kind of miracle. He's going to provide something for the sacrifice. I don't think he's lying. God will provide himself. You could say, well, he's going to himself provide us something. Himself is going to provide something for us to sacrifice. But grammatically, that also reads that God will provide himself. He'll kill his own son on this same spot. In Abraham, verse 10, stretched forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son, and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Now, the Bible does a, all the way reading out to the end of Revelation. It holds Abraham up as just top-shelf believer. This guy was willing to follow the voice of God in even the taking of the life of his own son. And again, some people read this and they think, what a strange God of the Old Testament. He would ask him to do But it's painting a picture. The reason it's in here. Yes, God did have a deeper relationship with Abraham that day. Can you imagine being Abraham walking down? He stopped my hand. I obeyed him. I actually I went through with it. I was going to do it, and God sent his angel, and he stopped me. His relationship grew that day. That's not why this is in here. See, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that these things happen for our examples, that we could learn unto our admonition. So when we read this, what's going on? It's a picture of a doting father who was willing to kill his only son. Now this, this starts to come out. Look at verse 13. Abraham lifts up his eyes. He looks and behold behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Now see there, even in that detail, it's a substitution. We, our sin was meant that we needed to pay a price for that. But God removed us off the chopping block, and he put his own son there instead. He substituted something out. 
That part is even contained in this story. Now look at verse 14. Now it starts to get really good. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. What's that word mean? As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it... What's the tense of that verb? It shall be seen. Is that past, present, or future? It shall be seen. Abraham is saying in the future. Now, Jehovah-Jireh means God provideth. So he said, all right, we're, now that I know what's going on, I'm naming this place, not down there at the mountain, not where we live, not where we came from, not across the river. This place where we just we were going to sacrifice you, Isaac, we are going to call that place God provides. And here's why. In the mount of the Lord, it in the future, it shall be seen. See, you can hear in Abraham's language, he now knows something. He knows he was acting out an image, a story, a prophecy, a pattern. And you may be thinking, come on, John, you're, you're reading stuff into that. It doesn't say there, John, that Abraham knew that Jesus, God's son, would be sacrificed. And you're right. Right there, you can kind of read it into it, where God is concealing a thing. Go to John chapter 8. The Gospel of John. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having one humdinger of an argument with the Pharisees. They are throwing back names at each other, and it's getting heated. Jesus is raised the stakes to where he's calling the Pharisees, the children of the devil. I mean, this thing is getting heated. And finally, Jesus, after they say children of the devil, we know where we came from. We're Abraham's kids. They're using their lineage coming from Abraham to tell Jesus that we're on God's side. And here's what Jesus says, John chapter 8 and verse 55. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like an... He, he called people liars, people. In some situations, I'm going to go out on a limb here, it is biblically accurate if you find one, and if you can prove it, you can call somebody a liar. We can say that. But I know him and keep his saying. Now look at what he says here in verse 56. He says, your father Abraham, that guy you guys like, your father Abraham, he rejoiced to do what? To see my day. He saw it and was gone. I got a question for you. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus. How could he possibly have seen, quote, Jesus' day? Now, we all understand what the phrase Jesus' day meant. Right When Jesus says, he rejoiced to see my day, what do we know that he means? He means he saw me in the flesh walking this earth in my time. And Jesus says, Abraham saw that. When did Abraham see that? On that mountain, baby, when God 
showed him. That's why he named that place. God will provide himself a lamb. As Moses said, in the mount of the Lord it shall be in the future. You can tell by Moses' language, or excuse me, Abraham's language, that something, there's a light that's gone off. He understands that God has used his life to create a pattern, an image, just like that dumb brazen serpent thing. Now, there isn't, from Genesis 22 all the way here, there is no black and white detail, explanation, rationalization of, well, Abraham was sacrificing his son just like God would sacrifice his son. However, the plain reading of the Bible, if you just keep going, and if you're willing to look at John chapter 8 and Genesis 22, not as competing and not as, well, one is the God of the Old Testament and one is the God of the New. They're separated by, what, 40 different books of the Bible? I don't look at it that way. I don't think God sees any distance between Genesis 22 and John chapter 8, verse 56. It's just the way God is. His word is perfect. Every detail matters. And sometimes, actually, as what we read from Jesus in talking to his disciples after he was raised from the dead, God does conceal some things in the scripture. And what's the rest of that verse in Proverbs? That it is the glory of kings to search that thing out. God wrote this Bible in such a way that it contains tons more information than what we actually give it credit for. Now, I've often thought, I kind of like history, and I think through history of people that were, say, in prison for their faith or really persecuted, and I think, I mean, if, if it ever comes in my time, I mean, what would it be like to be locked in a prison cell? And if I was, if somebody could smuggle in just maybe a couple pages of the Bible, could I get a lot of the information in just those pages? What if somebody smuggled into you Genesis 22? You would have a picture in that one small chapter of the entire New Testament. God sacrificing his son, an innocent, that substitution on the top of that mountain. That's why throughout the entire Old Testament, they always sacrificed these animals, the lamb. And when John the Baptist was walking in the presence of Jesus one day, he pointed at his cousin, and what did he tell his disciples? He said, there goes the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That sacrificing of the Lamb, catching its blood, that picture started way back there in the beginning, and God never discarded it. He used it all the way through when John the Baptist came and he's pointing his disciples toward Jesus. There goes the lamb that takes away the sin. What's the lamb for? It's not just for petting. It's not just for manure purposes to help the soil. What's the purpose of the lamb? To give its life for sin. There goes the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You get to the book of Revelation and it still talks about Jesus as the lamb coming back, and this time it's, he's coming back with wrath. 
uses that throughout the entire Bible. You see, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing. When you read your Bible, be sensitive to every detail, every place name, every number, every event. And you may think, well, where's this going to be explained? God may wait until you get to the end of your Bible until he explains it all. You know what? That's why people don't like to read the book of Revelation. What's back there? Every image in the first 12,000 pages. It's all back there. But just like every textbook, where are the answers? They're in the back. And when you get to Revelation, it uses all these images, all these pictures, and they mean nothing to us because, well, we, we don't understand where they came from. Isaiah and Ezekiel, all those images of scrolls and heaven being rolled up, the, the strange things, if we don't understand the first part of it, that, that's why Revelation gets no press. Because to understand it, you first got to know the first 65 books of the Bible. Let me look to see here if I need to end on. Um, it was in 2 Corinthians. It's right there. I got it. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll end there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We reference this, but it's worthy to just let our eyes see it in, in looking at the Bible this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. It says, now all these things, and what are these things? These are it, the chapter heading in my Bible of this chapter Chapter 10 is admonitions from Israel's history. He is talking about the, how Israel screwed up, how they were judged, what God did with them. And when he gets down to verse 11, he says all these things, the things that happened to Israel. All these things happened unto them. Why? For examples... And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. You really learn something about the character of God when you start to look at the Bible this way. He had in his mind you and me when Moses was putting that serpent on a pole. God had you and me in mind when he had Abraham march out that image of sacrificing his son. Strange to think about. Now, in some of those instances, we kind of know that those people didn't know why they were being asked to do some strange things. In Abraham's case, we got a pretty darn good idea. He knew. He knew he was acting out a future event, even on the same spot that it would happen. But sometimes, whether it was David fighting Goliath, that might be a picture of somebody fighting the Antichrist. There's all kinds of pictures, images, patterns that are all throughout the Bible. And God wrote it in such a way that it is, it is his glory to conceal something. Now let's, 
end with that idea. When God did that with Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus, can you see how that proves that this Bible came from an extraterrestrial sphere? There's no way somebody could have 2,000 years ahead of time convinced Abraham, let's go kill your kid. So that 2,000 years later we can convince a bunch of people that God always had it in mind to sacrifice his son. There's no, you, you cannot convince me of that. You know how, much, how many languages go out of existence in a 2,000 year period? Countries dissolve, they disappear. Cultures vanish. And yet God kept all this stuff in a perfect image, a perfect pattern up to this day right now. See, what it proves is God wrote this book. This Bible came from somewhere other than just some old Jewish guys writing this thing down. There's all these secrets that are tucked in here, these hidden messages that confirm the whole package. So if you were stuck in prison, somebody could slide under a door, four, five, six, 17 pages of the Bible, and you could read in there, and God could talk to you about almost anything. He has messages in his word that the Holy Spirit will unravel. Our Bible is an amazing thing. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray over every person that attends pastors' churches. And we pray, Lord, that you would always be with them, that you would guard and protect them, that you would send angels before them to keep them in all of their ways. Lord, we pray over Pastor and Tiffany right now that wherever they may be, that they would live under an open heaven, that the blessing of the Lord would go before them. We pray that they would have a wonderful time back home in Ohio, that Pastor would get to see the friends and the family that he, would, that he desires, that he would be able to witness to them. Lord, we thank you for having sent them here to us to minister to us in our churches. And we pray that you would always bless them. Keep every single one of us throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.